Bring It On is a public affairs program exploring the people, issues, and events affecting the African-American communities in South Central Indiana and beyond. Bring It On is a forum for the people, by the people, produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana, and financially supported by listeners like you. Good evening. I'm Clarence Boone, and welcome to Bring It On, a multiple award-winning show in our 15th year as Indiana's only weekly community radio show committed to exploring the people, issues, and events impacting the African-American community. Good evening, I'm William Hosea, and we are looking forward to the next hour of dialogue with three phenomenal women who are no strangers to civil rights activism. Again, we are drawing our attention to what is turning out to be a season of social transformation. And before we get started, just again, we're um, conferencing and with COVID-19 precautions, we're taking this added step to safeguard both our staff at, at Bring It On and our guests. So if if there are any technical glitches or audio glitches uh, of any kind, uh, we apologize on the forefront, but we hope you enjoy what's coming on. Uh, join us, joining us tonight are Bring It On contributors and post-secondary educators and authors, Amrita Myers and Jacinda Townsend, and local Black Lives Matter activist, Jada Barbary. Ladies, welcome to Bring It On. Thank you. You know, a few weeks ago, I heard uh, Jada and Jacinda recite some spoken word, and I just thought then it was, it was really powerful and moving. So we wanted to invite you on to uh, share that with us again. So we're gonna ask Jada and, and Jacinda to render us with a selection of their spoken word craft. What follows are their riveting views from the heart that were recently shared at a forum that I attended. And we'll get into it afterwards. Uh, just Jada, if you don't mind, would you go first, please? This is called Eulogy for Living Black Lives. If I die from gun violence, know that it is white supremacy. If I die from police violence, know that it is white supremacy. If I die while wearing a black hoodie, know it is from white supremacy. And if I die screaming, I can't breathe, know it is from white supremacy. If I die, from a break-in at my house while I'm quietly playing video games, know it is from white supremacy. And if I die in prison, know that getting me there and keeping me there is from white supremacy. And if I die in a detainment concentration camp, know that it is from white supremacy. If I die in a war fighting with another country, a war caused by the careless words from a politician, know that it's from white supremacy. And if I die in a mass shooting, at the angry hands of yet another white man, please know that it too will be because of white supremacy. And you should know that if I die from white supremacy, I will be just another statistic in a long line of statistics of black death and I will not be alone, the first or the last to go like this. And if I die from white supremacy, I wish for you to finally know me, finally see me and my black life, the life, the life you take for granted that I wish to prolong that I am amazed that it is allowed to be this good and happy. I don't want to leave this life. I still think of myself as young. I mean, properly young, wild and crazy and a danger to every pretty girl I meet. Crazy enough to date green eyes that flash malice and lust. Crazy enough for all the booze and dancing. My God, the dancing all of the time. And I don't want to leave because I still think I have more life left in me. But if I do die from white supremacy, I wish for you to finally know me. Know me as the cosmic starlight of a black star, of the moment it explodes and scatters its dust throughout existence, that on dead worlds, 
particles of me form grains of sand for some soon-to-be ancient beings to walk on. That on that beach that is made of me, the sun is hot. I have no body, no skin to be judged by, no heart to be broken. I will be made into everything, spread out and unafraid. And on that beach, where what is left of me and what is left of you have two choices. To continue to play out this game of control or to focus on being sand or grass or tree. We can focus on what we are, stardust. If I die of white supremacy, I will become so many things but lose all that I have here. Like her smiling face when I kiss her goodnight, or the way she fits into my neck, like all good lovers do, mimicking swans and braces, like the deep magic of Indiana nights. I miss the quiet comforts of home, the loud shows belting out prints to anyone who will listen. And yes, I will miss the cat in his fluffy fur that goes everywhere and complicated friendships that I never know how to maintain. I'll miss driving, just driving with the windows down, music as loud as I can, 60 miles an hour on back roads, summer in Indiana. I know it's not a massive life. I am not a conqueror of worlds, but it is my life. It is my black life, my black queer life. And though this, is a, this eulogy isn't about me, it isn't really for me. It is for Tamir Rice, Sandra Bland, Eric Gardner, Trevion Martin, Alton Sterling, Philando Castillo, Botham Young, uh, Tatiana Jefferson, Deshaun Reed, Rihanna Taylor, Tony McDade, George Floyd, and all the young Black children at home now getting the talk from their parents. The talk about how to be acceptable in a world designed not to accept them about how to stay alive in a world designed to kill them, about how to have joy in a world that is designed for sorrow. This eulogy is meant for the living as well as the dead, to remind the living of what we owe each other and to show the dead they are not forgotten. If I die from white supremacy, it could have been avoided. It can be avoided. Every single white friend, family member, acquaintance, coworker, neighbor, politician, if you confronted the white supremacy within yourselves and in this community. And when we say Black Lives Matter, it is a dire call to look within, to change, to know, to understand, to be understood, and to care. And if I die from white supremacy, I leave these instructions for how to carry on. Please, of course, White Prince, as loud as you can at my funeral. Bury me, don't cremate me because I have been burning up for far too long. Close the casket. You don't need to see me, the shell filled with bullet holes or strangle marks or bruises from the beating I received. Show only pictures of me young and happy. Eat good food at my repast and tell stories of my drama because you know there's lots. No, I never willingly gave up my life. No, it was taken from me. Know that I am still here to haunt you as a ghost. And know that I love you, Mama. And one day you will join me in heaven and hell and San Junipero or the rings of Saturn and know that my black life means something to those who love me and those my life touches. And if I die from white supremacy, please, please, please let me be the last one. Do something about your own white supremacy, your families, your communities, this country, the world, because my black life matters and so do yours. Wow, that was that was awesome, Jada. That was simply awesome. Um, 
it resonated with me on a number of different levels. And if I could start this off, I'd like to pose a question. Uh, we, we sort of frame white supremacy uh, as this um, indestructible force. And I wonder, at the end, you sort of say, uh, it must not conquer us. But, but are, we, are we truly challenging white supremacy? I just pose it as a question. Uh, you know, are we giving white supremacy the air to, to, to exist? Are we giving them strength? Are we giving them control? Um, and then two, you, you may mention of the talk. Mm. And I've heard that uh, mm. as of late many times, parents having or older elders having the talk with um, younger children or teenagers or young adults. And at some point I'd like to explore to all of us, you know, for each of us, what does the talk, what is it composed of? So, so that, those are my two just instant reflections over that very riveting, powerful um, rendering that you share. Well, let me, let me talk a bit about what, for me, what white supremacy is. White supremacy is the air that we breathe. It's the land that we stand on. It's, it's, it's the entire conception of what we know as current society. So when you say, are we giving it space, I'm like, it took that space a long time ago. White conquerors took that space a long time ago. We are just in the process of taking it back to build a fairer society. And oftentimes I feel like when white people hear this concept that we're taking the space back, they think that we want to be the black conquerors, that we want to come in and create a black dominated society where they are all of a sudden the slaves and we're the masters. And I always say, that's your history. That's what you did with time. That's not what we do. We build communities. We create togetherness. We forgive our captors. And we, we try to move on to create fairer societies. That's what Black people do with the world. That's, that's how we create. And so we're not talking about dismantling white supremacy or confronting white supremacy. Um, I'm talking about that process of, of creating a fairer society, creating um, a society that isn't dominated by one culture. Um, and, you know, while maybe black pop culture is the thing that dominates the airwaves or TV shows or whatever, um, it is not the thing that, that gets paid for all of that stuff. It is not the thing that... Um, you know, is is the impetus around all of it? You know, even 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 if we were, uh, you know, selling our own selves, we don't we don't do that. We can't get there because the entire system is created for white people to sell us in some shape, way, or form. And so that's what I mean when I'm talking about confronting white supremacy is dismantling that element. It doesn't mean conquering white people. It means literally dismantling the system in which we have already been colonized and and decolonizing and removing that element from from the world change hearts and minds too and then uh at some point the talk uh, a little bit later or when you reference the talk and, and i'm hearing that phrase especially um, a lot of single mothers are in fact 
other might have a talk or parents jointly may have a talk with their children. But uh, the concept of the talk and maybe talk about what are the elements of this talk? I mean, uh, uh, the basis of it that I understand is, you know, how to navigate situations with the police, but also with white people. Um, that, you know, it's, it's, it's that first conversation about code switching. It's the first conversation about, look, your life as a little black boy, a little black girl, a little black child, you, your life is in danger if you mouth off to white people, if you don't approach them the way that they expect to be approached by you. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, that's the, we, we, we break our children's innocence because they, it has to be shattered in order for them to survive. So sandwiched somewhere between the birds and the bees conversation is this talk about surviving life in the Western hemisphere. Uh, yeah, yeah. And making sense of stuff, okay, thank you. And I think, I, think, I think black children get that talk before they get the birds and the bees talk. Mm-hmm. That's the talk you gotta, at this point in time, you gotta have that with four and five year olds. Yeah. You know, and, and before you're getting to telling them about, you know, how babies are made. I guess back during Jim Crow, that the talk took on the dynamic of knowing your place, um, not making waves, not making eye contact, uh, being humble, you know, all these sort of, as I think on it now, these self-degrading things, but mm-hmm. it was survival. Survival. So as not to dominate this exchange, anyone else have an observation of her, uh, of her rendering there? I just want to say, I have not given any form of the talk. And I think not giving the talk for me is a sort of resistance because, um, you know, my my kids have been absorbing racism since they were two. I, the, the very first time I remember something really terrible happening um, was when my oldest kid was in preschool. So in a way, I think my version of the talk is about not internalizing that sort of thing. Um, my version of the talk is explaining the systematic racism that's going on all around us. But I never tell my kids to be docile or meek or any of that. Um, because, you know, when, when do we stop? Like, if, I, if, if I'm still giving the same talk people gave in 1973, then what have I accomplished? Um, mm-hmm. so, no, I'm actually, I'm teaching my teenager how to drive now. I do tell her what my dad taught. And, and I will say, my, neither my dad nor my mom gave me that talk either. What they did tell me is how to avoid the police. Um, I am giving that talk very much. I'm telling my daughter about speed traps. I'm telling her about, um, you know, my dad told me very cryptically, it made me wonder what the hell he'd been up to. He said, if you if you get, get to an exit, don't think you can outrun these people, you know? So I, I do tell her very practical things um, that have a lot to do with the fact that yes, she is black and I don't want her to just have a run in with them at all. Um, but no, I have not said, avoid eye contact or, or don't mouth off or anything like that, because I, I, I do strongly feel that, that that's a, my form of resistance, actually. And I, and I understand, you know, my kids have a little bit of privilege because they're biracial, but I, 
I'm not sure I would be giving that that same talk that was given 20 years ago either. And I never and, did. So. And my, my reference to avoiding the eye contact takes me back to a time in the 40s, 50s, 30s, whatever. Uh, but beginning in the 60s and 70s, I'm sure that talk changed. Um, anyone else? Any have, have any observations? Okay. Um, Jacinda? Sure. Would you like to render uh, your spoken word? Yes, and I want to um, preface it a little because um, novelists write too much and they write too long. And so what this is, this is part of a novel. Um, this is my new novel. It's called James Leverruth. And um, this scene comes pretty late in the novel. The novel is about a woman whose father is killed by the police in the 80s. And she, um, in response to her grief, changes her identity and moves across the country. Um, so this is the part of the novel that's the actual um, killing. And it, it sort of came out of, I, I interviewed a, a lot of families for um, Al Jazeera who had survived police violence. Um, I interviewed Eric Garner's family. I interviewed um, Bell's, uh, what's his name? Um, the Bell's family. Um, I interviewed Tamir Rice's mother and, and siblings. And what they all said is that they had never actually been allowed to grieve um, for a variety of reasons. None of them had been to therapy, like literally none of them. Um, they said, you know, with the, the state was now kind of all over them. They couldn't trust therapists. Um, they said they were all being publicly watched. Um, so they couldn't grieve in public and they just couldn't grieve. And I, the most significant of those interviews I remember is that Tamir Rice's mother told me that the way grief had manifested for them is that her kids who had been teenagers when this all went down, then began to make just terrible life choices. Um, and she detailed to me them to me and they were, they were pretty terrible life choices. And she said, you know, her life had fallen apart, but she had never had any time to go through the grieving process. So, um, I thought about that and, um, Yes, yeah, so I'll just um, read this scene. It had been six hours since the police officer had shot her father four times, and the short pop, 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 nimble as the treble clef of a sonata was on instant replay in her mind. She'd been lying outside in the grass, watching the sky for low altitude flights from San Francisco. And when she heard the report of the gun, she flopped wildly over to her stomach, thinking the shots were coming from across the privacy fence from Mrs. Cordopassi's cactus garden. The moment in which she hesitated, the moment it took her to figure out the shots were coming from somewhere within her very own house, was the moment her mind began learning to revise itself. Should she cower out of sight, she wondered, should she save herself? And then she thought of her father, her father, her one living parent, and in the next second she was running, screaming, dad, 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 because she already knew and for a long time, she thinks she knew because she held her father just that closely in her consciousness. But years later in college, she takes psychology for, and she'd learn about distant sensory perception. And she'd wonder if she'd heard on the wind a disturbance of sound wave as Bob Bradley scaled the fence to get to her bedroom and her father argued with him and a neighbor saw this entire sequence of events and called the police. Had she smelled on the air the fine microscopical fine microscopic particles of gunpowder as the sheriff took his high range rifle, got out of his cop car and aimed at the darker man's chest. 
By the time she ran through the back door, through the kitchen, through the living room and out the front door, her father was stooped in the driveway. He wore his favorite shirt, the white one with intersecting purple, green, and gray stripes. The shirt she liked to think of as graphing paper, and she could see the circles of blood breaking more and more of the 90 degree angles the stripes made, spreading across his shoulder like the sample stain in a whisk commercial. From behind him, she could see the policeman still pointing his gun at her father. She could see Bob standing with his hands straight up in the air, his hazel eyes turned almost gray in the sunshine, tears easing out of them. From behind, she saw her father's arm bent at the elbow where he was clutching some part of his own interior, and she saw the defeated sag in the legs of the brown pants he'd worn the day he spoke to her sixth grade class about accounting as a career, and the day he told her and Wendy to go outside and rake the leaves in the front yard, and the day he picked her brother Russell up from his 16th and last day at Riley Children's Hospital. She saw her father fall over. She heard his head smack against the black top of the driveway he'd just resealed with Henry's. She saw the blood fly out of his mouth. Little droplets of her father's heart turned to beads of airborne liquid. Time slowed then in a way she'd always be ashamed of, and it wasn't until she heard the crackling voice on the cop's car radio that she screamed. She ran to her father in big gulpy steps, but then there came three cops ricocheting against her chest before she could even touch him. They wrestled her to the hot asphalt alongside her father, and someone clicked open a pair of handcuffs. Someone sat on the back of her legs and wrenched her shoulders backwards, and even as the pain shooting through her spinal column blacked out almost everything else, she heard the second metallic click of the handcuffs they were fastening on her father. His face was a foot away from hers. Dad, she said, or thought she said, Dad, I won't let them hurt you anymore. But then they were dragging her to the cop car, dragging her before she could even stand so that first her knees and then the toes of her tennis shoes skidded against the pavement, the sidewalk, the street. She tried to kick and when she couldn't, the screams came and then they were shoving her in the backseat of the cop car that smelled of corn chips and stale vomit. She saw two cops handcuffing Bra Bradley while a third took a statement into a mini recorder. She saw a fourth officer unwinding yellow tape from a roll and nowhere, nowhere, nowhere did she see an ambulance. Did one of you call 911? She asked the cop driving her, but the cop just told her to watch her mouth. She asked him five more times and never would he answer her. And then they were off far across town in the police station, which she'd never seen. Uh, equally as riveting. You, you both have that gift to transport us. And Jacinda, I couldn't help it. I, I was reliving that and Mark of a an excellent wordsmith, uh, someone who knows how to get into or intervene and just take some journey. Thank you. Um, anyone else have observations on that? This is a true story, right? No, it's based on a composite of an oh, interview. Okay. So. But, but still, it could prob probably accurately describe so many situations that, that Black people faced uh, while interacting with police. Yes. And and nothing is ever done about it. So, you know, just how many black families are out there dealing with this when not, no one was held accountable? Um, yeah. And and they got no relief whatsoever. Right. And and w one thing we never really talk about much is the effect not only on the families, but on the communities. So Tamir Rice's sister, as as we know, was there when he was killed. Yeah. She ran. Um, 
I mean, it's just awful. Every time I think about it, I feel so awful. She ran up and tried to sort of help because nobody had called an ambulance at all. He wasn't given medical assistance for eight minutes. Um, so after seeing all this go down, instead of anyone soothing her or maybe even addressing her feelings, they put her in the cop car and took her away. That child who was then 14 years old, stopped eating for a very long time. Um, she lost a lot of weight. Um, I don't want to, I mean, her mother is very public about what's happened to her since. Um, it's, it's, you know, it's a story. Um, but, you know, I, I, another survivor I talked to, she said she can't sleep anymore except between the hours of like 2 and 5 a.m., um, part of that has to do with the fact that, and this is um, Marshall Miles' sister, when he was killed, this is in Sacramento, when he was killed, SAC PD started cruising around her house because, you know, they wanted to know who she was talking to, who was contacting her. Um, so, there, you know, these families are put through the ringer in all kinds of ways we don't even think about. The other thing we don't talk about much is the way that this ripples out to a community because it is terrorism um it's terrorism of the worst kind you know it is basically if we were watching this as news from another country we would be like oh these these state-sponsored officers have declared war on an ethnic group in that country um and and we don't think about that the way people and especially the the families of these victims have to then sort of cower in their homes and hide from the state and watch their movements and watch what they say. And it, it is um, such a miracle of strength, I think, that most of them become incredibly politically active anyway. You know, um, I, I, um, Kevin Bell's mother said, huh, um, her story was just really affecting me too. She said that she actually worked in the hospital where his body was taken after he was killed. She went to work every day for months upon months. And then finally one day um, someone called her about um, a bill, a state bill or something. And she just, she has become politically active from then and just never looked back. So I think in a lot of ways, um, you know, one, one family told me this is actually the way we address grief is that we become politically active. So no, Jacinda, I was, um, I'm sorry, you know, I had technical difficulties. Um, there's a power outage in my house right now. And I'm, so I'm now logged back in on my phone. So I just wanted to say thank you to you and Jada both for your pieces, because they're both um, incredibly riveting. Um, I actually just sort of emotionally, I'm trying to put myself back together after listening to both of them. And I, you know, as a historian, I was just transported back listening to you read Jacinda, because um, I was the vision I had was actually of Medgar Evers. That's where it took me. Um, that it took me right back to that particular. I mean, it's not the only one, but you, like Clarence said, like you have a way of taking us in your writing. Um, I mean, this isn't new, right? This isn't recent. It's been going on for a very, very long time, and I think it was because it was a driveway scene, right? Um, and and the way you have so in, um, in, so beautifully. I hate to use that word. Um, captured the scene um, and a child seeing her father. Um, but this is this is the thing. I mean that it I mean we know that in, in Medgar's case it wasn't a police officer, but the thing is is that whether it's vigilante violence or agents of the state, right, it connects back to what Jada was saying earlier that white supremacy 
uh, literally, right, is in the very air that we breathe, that it is the culture of a nation, that no one escapes it. Uh, and that there, therefore everyone, no matter what your background, white, brown, Asian, et cetera, has grown up with it, ingested it, and we are surrounded by it. And it's been going on for so long that to, that to so many people, it becomes invisible. And it's been, but that these, that these murders have been going on for such a long time. And we get to this point and so many people, um, now we find ourselves in, this, in the midst of what I, you know, of uprisings of what really has become um, the point of almost revolution. And so many people are saying, well, is this a, a moment or a movement? People are saying, how long will it last? And so many of us are saying, but why did it take this long? Because it didn't just, if this isn't the first, it isn't even the 51st, it's been happening for centuries. Why did it take so long for so many people to finally become conscious to the fact that so, so many of us have lost so many people and that we have literally been, that so many people are, like you said, you know, if you were, if we were watching this happen or unfold in any other country, that we would be going, "Wow, that this is ethnic cleansing, right? That that agents of the state and vigilantes have been targeting a group of people for for centuries, and that this is ethnic cleansing. Why has it taken people so long to rise up and say this is wrong? That that black lives do matter, and that we must say no more. Um, and so for my, for me, like, you know, my rage is, you know, I'm sort of at like, it's not like, well, how long will this last? But why did it take people so long to simply say that, you know, people's black lives matter and all black lives matter, trans black lives, gay black lives, women's black lives, because really it just seems like still, even within our own community, certain black lives are right more, <laughs> seem to have hold more value than, than others. So but I just want to thank both of you because even though I write, I, I do a very different kind of writing from, from the way you do. And I just want to thank you for, for sharing this, this, more, this evening because your writing is just so incredibly powerful. Thank you. And I will say, uh, Emrita, you're hitting it on the head with the, like, the question to ask, why now? Why now? Why, why did it take, you know, and, and, and is this what is going to take us in? And, um, and I think, I think you, the, the question that is, that is happening is, is that, yes, if it were to happen outside of this country, we would be talking about that. But the reason why we don't talk about it in this country uh, is because it's Black lives. That, that's it. That's the, that's the reason why we, we aren't talking about it, is because we're talking about descendants of slaves. Of course. It's easy to it's easy to point the finger at someone else's mistake, but it's very easy. It's not so easy to remove the, the log from your own eye. <laughs> right? And uh, if you're just now joining us, I'm William Jose with Clarence Boone, and we're speaking with bringing on contributors and post secondary educators and authors. I'm Rita Myers and Jacinda Townsend and local Black Lives Matter activist Jada Barbary. Clarence. And we've just heard uh, two riveting uh, spoken word pieces from both ladies, both uh, Jada and Jacinda, and both are uh, just powerful. And they both were, were offered at a recent forum, I believe, and um, I, I dare say that I know that they're still resonating with the hearers. You know, a lot has been said recently about defunding the police. And the phrase itself conjures up a myriad of definitions in our minds. And everyone that hears that phrase, it sort of reacts, they, they react differently. 
And I, I think what has been needed and what's beginning to happen now is clarification on the on that phrase, that, that concept of defunding the police. Now, before we launch into a discussion on this, let's play a clip from a recent Rachel Maddow interview with guest Dr. Philip Natiba Goff. He's a Franklin A. Thomas professor in policing equity at John Jay College of Criminal Justice. He offers his definition and makes the case for defunding the police. We would like to ask our engineer to play that clip at this time. Really what we're seeing now is people moving towards the sides of abolition, um, but it's, it's actually about not having no police, right? But making sure again, that communities have the resources so that you can have less of a footprint of police, right? So I'll give you an example. Lots of people have been asking me for the last couple of days, hey, if we defund the police, what happens when you call 911? And what I say back is, well, if something's on fire, what number do you call? Well, you call 911 and who shows up? It's, it's the ambulance, right? Or sorry, it's the fire truck. Um, and if somebody's having a heart attack, you call 911 and the EMT shows up. So we already have 911 giving lots of different emergency services. Imagine what would happen if when someone was overdosing or when a couple was having a disagreement that they didn't know how to resolve or when a kid wasn't feeling safe, right? If you could call mental health resources, child protective resources, substance abuse resources, if the resources that folks needed so they didn't need to rely on law enforcement were there, Right? If 911 had more options, communities would feel safer and you wouldn't be introducing a badge and a gun to situations that law enforcement can never be trained to manage in the first place and that they've been calling to get out of the business of for years. That's what the majority of protesters and activists I talk to say that they want. They want more options for 911. They want more resources for communities. So communities make the decision about when something has gotten violent enough that a badge and a gun is appropriate. Wow, we're back uh, after hearing uh, some very insightful, um, scholarly uh, defining of the concept defunding the police. And let's let's go around and, and get impressions on that. I I sort of took away from that that um, as um, Dr. Golf was speaking, that he sort of pulls together that it's not on the surface that you're cutting support off from supporting law enforcement. But you're you're rechanneling the resources. You're you're doing a better job of prioritizing where the need is the greatest and who can best fill the need. Anyone else taking anything away from that? I'd like to hear from uh, Amrita because a couple of weeks ago when we were doing another show with a different group of people, she brought that up, and it caught all of us kind of off guard. That was the the, the, the one of the first times that I'd heard it. So. The first thing that comes to mind is exactly what you said, Clarence, no police department. But since then, as, as you hear more discussion about it, especially on the uh, news outlets, it kind of takes on a different meaning, something more sensible. So uh, Amrita, do, do you agree with uh, Dr. Golf? Well, I mean, I listened um, the other night to Dr. Goff's entire um, segment on Rachel Maddow, which is um, about eight minutes long. So it's a little bit longer than what your listeners had a chance to hear today. And I would encourage them to actually go and, and listen to the entire segment online if they have a chance. And, um, you know, the, the whole move to, um, on defunding is really about shrinking police departments so, and reallocating resources to things like mental health, jobs, um, social work, 
uh, things of that nature um, in order to get the police out of business they shouldn't be doing in the first place and that they're not trained to do, right? They shouldn't be responding to calls having to do with people who are homeless, people who have drug addictions, things of that nature, because they often escalate those situations and bring violence into situations that don't require violence anyway, right? So we bring in trained professionals who are, who are actually trained to handle um, social work situations, mental health situations, drug addiction situations. And we actually reallocate resources to those situations you know, for those people. And policing then becomes about situations that actually involve crime. That way the police forces shrink. We also demilitarize the police. We take away things like AR-15s and assault vehicles, things of that nature, because policing has become hyper-militarized over the last 40 years, concurrent with the war on drugs. We've also put police in our schools where they don't need to be. So we get police out of our schools. We take away their fancy, fancy weapons of war, which they don't need. We shrink them numerically. We do all of these things. And we also put, we also reinvest in black communities. We take that money that has been going towards war and towards policing, and we put it into healthcare, we put it into schools and education, we put it into reinvesting into jobs, we raise basic universal income in this country, we do all of those things because the money exists, and we see everybody flourish and thrive. But ultimately, defunding also means it's a step towards police abolition, and that's something that people that makes people nervous. But you can't just turn off the taps overnight and move towards abolition. So defending, defunding is a step towards abolition, but we're, we can't just head, we just can't go there overnight. So it's a long process. It's a long, slow process to get us to a point where communities are healthy, thriving, and flourishing, where neighbors know each other and understand each other, where we have communities that are actually able and healthy, right? And in a place where the, where the police are really increasingly unnecessary. You know, that's an interesting point. Um, and, and I just want to say that that a concept of abolition is sort of touched on, I believe, in the second segment, the second clip. And we'll get to that in just a moment. But just Cindy, you had a point. Yeah, um, I just want to point out that it, it's interesting to me who is afraid of defunding the police because, um, you know, as some of us are disproportionately hunted down as possible perpetrators, I think um, we could also feel a little bit of inequity as victims, right? Um, and for, for the entire population, I mean, I, I, you know, if I call a police officer, I'm not going to get the response, same response as my white neighbor, um, which is why I just would never call one. But, but also just for the population in general, I'm not sure why we're fearing defunding a, a system that only prosecutes something like 0.5% of rapes. Um, I think in any municipality, something like 10 to 40% of murders are ever solved. Um, and, you know, when you're talking about these low, low statistics, you, you, you have to realize too that most of what police do is um, petty crime enforcement, like parking tickets, revenue generation, right? So when people get kind of afraid of that, I'm like, I don't know if we need to protect the things we are protecting. You know, and the things that we think we're protecting are, are not necessarily, we're a little deluded about that, I, I believe. Well, I also think that we have to understand oh, that. Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. I just want to jump in there and say, you know, the ancestors say everything looks like a nail to a hammer, right? The police officers are, are, are created and, and, and were in, in conceptualized as slave patrols. And created to to enforce. Correct. They are an enforcement body. 
They are um, therefore violence officers. They're not peacekeepers. They are violence officers. They are meant to um, inflict punishment on those who, who commit crimes, right? Or whatever we conceive of as a crime. And to just send this point of what we would call nuisance crimes, which is parking tickets, noise violations, um, selling illegal cigarettes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All of these so-called crimes that um, black people supposedly participate in and therefore warrant being murdered by the police. <laughs> um, those kinds of things are, are really things that can be solved by societal change. Mm -hmm. Why does somebody need to sell illegal cigarettes to make a living? Well, because there are no jobs. Correct. Because we don't have universal basic income. Correct. Because we don't have uh, health care. Because we don't have affordable housing in this country. Because we don't have mental health care facilities in this country. And on and on and on it goes. That we don't have societal things in place that cause these so-called nuisance crimes. And then when we say, when we talk about defunding the police and then we get to abolition, we start talking about abolition, everybody's immediate thought always goes to like the purge where all crime is legal and everybody just goes out and kills everybody. And, you know, you know, movies are movies for a reason. It's, it's fantasy. It's not reality. The, the reality is that we're talking about creating a society that doesn't need to have enforcement of rules, that we are creating a society that doesn't need a hammer. It needs love and care and compassion. And so um, that I, I, well, I always, I, I hear that and I hear that from black folks and I hear that from white folks, of course, but I hear it from black folks and I'm like, you know how it could be. You know what happens when you live in a society with your friends and family to, to rein in that, the, the impulses. It could be like your uncle sits you down and says, boy, what you doing? Why are you robbing somebody? instead of the cops taking you in and punishing you physically with violence. Well, and, it and could be those things. This is exactly what I was moving to, is that defunding is just a step on the road to abolition, because if we, if we move towards true restorative justice and community procedures and mediation and things of that nature, if everybody actually had what they needed, most crime would cease to exist. The reason crime exists is because people engage in out of desperation because we as a society don't provide them with the things mm -hmm. they need they don't have jobs they don't have health care they don't have jobs that pay them enough and so if these are acts of desperation when you take away those acts of the the need then the desperation ceases to exist when you have affordable housing health care jobs then people don't engage in those acts of desperation people are always worried about anarchy and law and order but we not every society has police and we didn't even have police for a long time so there are alternative ways of doing things i'm ready you bring up a uh, good point and an excellent analysis from everyone um the the point that you made i'm ready dr golf is going to kind of touch on it in this next clip that we're going to ask our engineer to play uh take a listen to this you defund the police department and take away 50% of the personnel, right? Which I'm hearing people say, like, just slash it 50% out. There is no union contract in the United States that says, that says anything other than last in, also first out. That means if you're trying to cut it, you're actually getting rid of the youngest officers who are also the most progressive, also the most interested in culture change. That's not the department that protesters are asking for, right? So if you don't end up mm following a roadmap and, and looking for ways to cut the right officers and cut the right programs, you're going to end up with, with tragedy in Black communities. And I can't overstate this point. 
for generations, we've had politicians say, you know what? Black communities, they can fend for themselves. They need to be taken care of themselves. So those mental health resources that, that other places have, we're going to privatize them. We're going to take the public ones and throw them away, right? The, the grocery stores that give you uh, fresh vegetables, take them, throw them out, right? The, the marriage counseling, the job training, all that stuff, take it, throw it out. And the only public system that receives any public funding is law enforcement. And in some of these communities, police cars are more likely to take you to the hospital when you're sick than ambulances because police cars get the funding. So if all we do is take money out of policing and we don't reinvest it either before or at exactly the same time we take it out of policing into black communities, we're making it worse. And, and, and this is part of the point I hope everybody gets tonight about Minneapolis and what we're seeing across the nation. This is not just a policing issue. And if we want to have solutions that are proportional to this moment and all we do, even if we radically reform policing, if that's all we do, we have missed the moment. Because what I am hearing and seeing and feeling is that this is a moment which is the past due notice on the unpaid debts owed to Black people for 400 years. Hey, uh, we're back. And Dr. Goff brought up a couple of uh, interesting points. One thing that stuck with me was he talked about how in some communities, and uh, I read directly from his quote, the only public system that receives any public funding is law enforcement. And in some of these communities, police cars are more likely to take you to the hospital when you're sick than ambulances. That, to me, really just lays out in black and white the, the relationship between law enforcement and the black community. Exactly. Because you have uh, none of these other public services in our community, and not very many of them are represented in, uh, in other communities as well. So, Emery, I'm going to come to you again and ask you to uh, start us off on the, second, uh, the analysis from the second clip. No, but this is exactly what I was talking about before we moved to the clip, is that there's always money for war and money for mm. policing, but not money to invest in our schools, not money to invest in infrastructure like hospitals and healthcare. Why are we still only the quote unquote, only industrial nation in the world that doesn't have true national healthcare for its citizens, right? So if, if there's money for war, then there's money to invest in our people. So that is why I'm saying there's always been money. Look what happened when COVID hit. The minute that COVID hit, people, people who had constantly been saying that we couldn't do things were immediately able to do all kinds of things. Necessity is the mother of invention, which means that we've always had the ability to provide all kinds of services for people. It's just that people have not wanted to. And so this is my whole point is that we have the ability to provide basic income, affordable housing, food justice, education, healthcare for all of our citizens. It's just that we've never wanted to because capitalism and profit have always outweighed the motivation to help our citizens. Those are the kinds of reinvestments. Those are the kinds of reinvestments we need to do is to move away from putting money into policing and war and reinvesting those dollars into the black community so that everybody thrives and therefore we don't need to actually turn to guns and bullets, right? If I, if I could uh, bring up couple quick points. One, uh, Dr. Goff had said that the police themselves have been asking for some help and, and just uh, splitting up some of the responsibility because they realize they're not trained to do some of the intervention they're being asked to do. That was interesting. And then he cited as an example, Camden and Compton. Uh, and we may not have a lot of time to go into those two uh, social experiments, but uh, he said he admitted he doesn't know what it's going to look like, the final uh, solution. 
and, and it's a work in progress. It may evolve into something that we're not even considering today. And then finally, to your point, Amrita, he talks about cutting or, or uh, reducing personnel at the, to the right level, as well as removing some programs. So what programs do you keep? Which personnel do you keep? So in, in the perfect model, it, it, there is a shrinkage. There is sort of a, uh, a new model that's gonna come from this. What it will look like, what is the mission vision? Initially, you know, on the side of every car, you see protect and serve, although their history doesn't bear that out. <laughs> so we probably gotta come up with a new tagline. Uh, <laughs> Well, and, they protect and, and serve. They protect and serve certain parts of the citizenry, just not ours. But 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 a real real critical question is protecting and serving. Uh, what type of society are you protecting and serving? Are you reinforcing? Because all of this, from from our youth up to day we take our last breath, I think there's a lot of programming going on. Um, I, think, I think Jacinda has a really good um, insight into what's been happening in Camden. Actually, she spoke about it a few days ago at the BLM okay. Juneteenth celebration. Oh, sure. So I would actually turn and, it over and, to her. And just, and, just, and just a little time check as timekeeper. We have about exactly 10 minutes. So just, just a little time check. Go ahead, sure. Jacinda. Um, so I'll uh, just really quickly, and I want to preface this by saying when, when you ask Clarence, what are they protecting and serving? That's a really good question. Um, there is a long list of corporate donors. Right. And, and one thing that I, I wish to God, like we could address is in, when we talk about defunding, we have to think about where that funding is coming from. Right. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of corporate interest, for instance, in weaponized and police departments. Right. Um, because that equipment is coming from somebody. Mm -hmm. But also there is a lot of just general corporate interest because the police historically protect capitalism. They protect capitalist interests. So I was a little stunned when I saw this list. Um, uh, you know, for instance, in Seattle, Starbucks is a major donor to the police. Target is a major donor to the police. Um, companies you wouldn't even think of, but of course they all have an interest, right? Um, so Camden's a really good example to look at because what happened actually wasn't quite abolition so much as reform. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it's a good thing to talk about because in, in, some, first, in some respects, um, it is evidence that rethinking the police can work, right? One thing they did was they they just fired everyone in 2013. It was Chris Christie actually was behind it. They fired all the city policemen, every single one, and made them reapply to work with the county. Um, about 50 hardliners of 250 didn't even bother to reapply because they were so upset about you know um, what was going on with the police union. Um, and, and worth noting, the, the people, the reformists actually received death threats, right? Um, so they cleared out that 250, but they ended up hiring back 400. Um, so this is one reason reform is not as good as abolition, right? But what Camden did, though, was, you know, the, the chief at the time understood that a lot of changing a police department is not about changing policy, but changing culture. Mm -hmm. So for instance, if there's a civilian complaint, that immediately gets reviewed like that day. And I think there's some ridiculous deadline on turnaround like two or three days before it goes before like a whole investigative board. Um, so they did, they did change. But one quick thing I'll say is that 
One reason abolition is different is that when you talk about reform, you're still talking about investing money in the police force that more properly could, should be spent on other services. Reform, for instance, is body cameras. That's tons of money. They're not that ineffective. They can be shut off. Oftentimes the video can't even be used. Um, reform is more training. Well, the guy who shot Rashad Brooks in Atlanta had just graduated from a training on using lethal force. So, um, you know, when we talk about defunding and putting that money elsewhere, and, and you know, Amrita's right, we do that to schools all the time. So we need to think about, um, you know, ways to receive that money. And uh, right into so what Jacinda was just talking about is the, is the concept of, 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 of who does the training? You know, what are the consequences for turning off your body cams? Who, who's on the board to review the complaints about the police officers? Is it a civilian board or is it made up of former cops? Um, you know, who is it that oversees the police department? Here in our, in our community, we have a, a board of public works or public safety, excuse me. And the board of public safety is made up of civilians, but they have no rule of law. They have no ability to sanction the police. They have no ability to um, create policies in which they, as the body, are enacting. The mayor has to agree with these policies, has to implement these policies. Um, and he only, our current mayor only does that in conjunction with whatever the police departments want. And so there's never enough checks and balances happening with the system. So then therefore the reform never fully works because it's still, it's still being um, micromanaged by the same people who are the problem. And so, you know, I, I always use, people always use that bad apple analogy that like, you know, there's just a few bad apples in the bunch, but the reality is, is that the whole orchards, the whole tree, yeah, the whole tree, yeah, the, 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 not just the tree, orchards oh. of bad fruit are, are existing. And you know, any good horticulturalist, anybody who knows anything about gardening and, 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 and tree maintenance knows that you have to cut them down, burn them, and plant new seeds. The roots and that's are bad. What, okay. Yeah. You know, okay. That's well, what we're talking about is, is, re, is replanting, replanting, mm -hmm. and getting new, new life into the entire criminal justice system. And that's not something that can happen tomorrow. It has to be, we have to move towards it. But if we don't, if we're too afraid, if we're way too afraid, then then nothing will happen, and we'll just continue to reproduce the same system that is oppressing so many people. Okay, thank you, uh, Jacinda and Jada. Um, we could talk about that for a lot longer, obviously. But in the last five minutes, uh, we want to shift gears a little bit, and we're going to go to, to Jacinda. Uh, you have strong ties to the state of Kentucky. So what I want to ask you, and I'm going to do this unfairly and ask you to get these two questions into the last three or four minutes. And but what are your called, opinions? This is, the, uh, this is the lightning round. By the yeah. Way, so. okay. <laughs> what are your opinions of the protests surrounding the murder of Breonna Taylor? And do you have any opinions on Tuesday's Kentucky primary? Do, do you have your, your finger on the pulse of uh, the community down there in Louisville? Sure. I'll, I'll take the second question first because it, I'll talk about that the quickest. Um, but uh, right now, Amy McGrath's actually leading by eight points, which is probably not a surprise. But what's kind of worth noting and what's really interesting is that um, Booker had this 
really late surge, right? Mm. Part of that is that he was endorsed by Alison Lunderson Grimes, who we you know who challenged McConnell in 2014. Um, but another part of it is that Amy McGrath had not ever quite um, put her hooks into the LGBTQ community or the Black community. Um, there was all, so much voter suppression in Louisville, right, that it was hard. But we have until June 30th, actually. So people are quite hopeful. Um, and I and I just, I want to stick up for my home state because, you know, people look at how often Mitch McConnell wins and just assume that we are terrible people. But the fact is he always has good challengers. We don't understand why he keeps winning. We have no idea. Well, we do know why. We know why because he says the word coal and for whatever reason, these 4,000 coal miners who still exist um, are able to convince their communities that, you know, the death of coal is the death of us all. Um, so every time he trots that out, he wins. But anyway, we're hopeful. We're still hopeful. Um, because I'm not sure that Amy McGrath would beat McConnell the way Booker might. Um, but, um, and I forgot, I'm sorry. Oh, well, actually, the, the next question involves a broader response. And, and really, I don't want to cheapen, and I, I use that, very carefully, cheaping your response, given the fact that we have time constraints. And as William so likes to say, that only means one thing. We have to bring you all back. Yeah. So at our expense, we'll fly you in um, <laughs> from Morocco and uh, from Canada. Or from across town. <laughs> from across town to join us. And, and really, time has escaped. And there were there are a couple other questions. I, I do want to give a quick shout out to Amrita, who is now at her 15 minutes of or maybe what three minutes? Three minutes of fame on Fox. Uh, she is now. What are you a certified Fox contributor or? Oh, hardly. <laughs> um, you know, but but she she represented well on Fox on a Fox affiliate in Indianapolis, and we of course we look to see her on MSNBC, CNN one day. It's it's going to happen. If not already, it's going to happen. Um, well, we're just about out of time. And again, we want to thank our bring on contributors and post secondary educators and authors and extraordinary women. And Rita Myers and Jacinda Townsend, and another extraordinary woman, um, Jada Barbary, who is a local Black Lives Matters activist. We want to thank them for joining us to cover an array of topics and issues. And of course, time just prevented us from really uh, digging into some deeper layers here. Uh, issues related to civil rights activism during this season of social transformation. And we all probably agree that these are really unique times. But again, thanks for joining us. Bring it on is an open submission policy. So if you have any ideas for this program, we would love to hear them. Please send your emails to our volunteer staff. Our address is bringiton at wfhb.org. We want to make sure we share any and everything affecting the African-American community with our listening audience in Bloomington and beyond. Our email address, once again, bring it on at wfhb.org. And I'm thinking August, ladies, for part two of this. So um, just want to give you a heads up. Our show's executive producer is yours truly, Clarence Boone, with help from WFHB News Department Director Kate Young. Tonight's board engineer is Kate Young and Chantal LaFontaine. And our original theme music was created by Jamil Effian with additional background tracks by David Baker. For WFHB, I'm Clarence Boone. I'm William Hosea. Please be sure to tune in next Monday at 6 p.m. for another edition of Bring It On right here on your community radio station, WFHB.